Hello, and welcome to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast, season five. I'm your host, Jackie Ferguson, certified diversity executive, writer, human rights advocate, and co-founder of the diversity movement. On this podcast, I'm talking to trailblazers, game changers, and glass ceiling breakers who share their inspiring stories, lessons learned, and insights on business, inclusion, and personal development. I'm Jackie Ferguson, and my guest today is Omar Harris. Omar is a best-selling author, founder and managing partner at Intent Consulting, motivational speaker, and leadership coach. Omar, I like to start by asking my guests a bit about themselves, their mm-hmm. background, their family, their identity, anything that you'd like to share. So in terms of my background, I come from a silently middle-class family, Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. My family's a bit unique in that I have three older brothers and a younger sister, but my three older brothers were all results of previous marriages of my parents. Mm-hmm. So my mother uh, had two children before she married my father, and my father mm-hmm. had a son before he married my mother. So from the beginning of my life, I kind of lived in a blended, kind of a blended family. Blended family. Pers- I mean, a yeah. lot of us are living <laughs> in those blended families yeah. these days, right? Yeah, from that perspective. And so I grew up in Pittsburgh till I was five years of age, but I still call Pittsburgh home. I lived in West Virginia, Charles, West Virginia from the age of five to 11, and then moved to Lake Charles, Louisiana, which was a really big shift from the north to the south. And, yeah. and I attended junior high school and high school in Louisiana before getting a full scholarship to Florida A&M in Tallahassee, Florida, which mm-hmm. is an HBCU, as you know, yeah. and really started off my, you know, my professional career in pharmaceuticals in 1998 mm-hmm. as a sales rep in Detroit, Michigan. I got another opportunity to go to Brazil. Uh, when I was 23 years old as an international marketing intern, it's been 16 oh. months in Brazil where I learned the language. And then I graduated from, from FAMU with my MBA at 25 and really started my professional career all in the pharmaceutical industry, working for companies like Sharing Plow, Merck, GlaxoSmithKline, and Allergan all around the world. So the career that took me from the U.S. back to Brazil a second time, to Turkey, to Indonesia, and back to Brazil oh. a third time before moving back to the U.S. last March. So I spent eight years out of the U.S. directly from 2012 to 2020, uh, living in Turkey, in Indonesia, and in Brazil. And then I came back to the U.S. last spring, smack dab in the middle of a global pandemic, social right. justice protests, and a very crucial American election. Wow. I mean, that amount of travel is really amazing. And Omar, correct me if I'm wrong, but you speak five languages. Is that right? Yes, not fluently. Not fluently. Okay. I, can, I know enough to be dangerous is what I yeah. would say. <laughs> that is but, amazing. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm fluent amazing. in Portuguese. Portuguese is like okay. my, you know, Brazil is like my second home. And I'm, I'm truly fluent in Portuguese to the point where people don't even know where I'm from when I'm down there. But other languages, Spanish, I'm, I'm fairly fluent. But other languages, like mm-hmm. I said, I know enough to be dangerous. That's awesome. What was your reaction, right, coming back to the U.S. with all of what was happening, right? And, and you just yeah. named it. It's like a whole different world. I mean, I would come back to the U.S. once or twice a year to visit yeah. my folks. So I was, you know, clearly aware of what's happening in the U.S. But certain things like, you know, the social media impact that was happening over here and, you know, all the division, you don't really feel it when you're living abroad, right? You don't really understand it until you come back and you're, you know, like I... I come back to the U.S. and I'm told that, you know, in the South, American flags are actually uh, stand-ins for Confederate flags. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, so I look, I start looking at all these American flags. And I'm like, 
okay, this is being something different now. And it, it's like a, a, a big time culture shock. And it, it just really was, was uh, very challenging. Plus I was dealing with, uh, with my mother's health as well, uh, which is why I came back to the U S at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. It was, it was just a, a lot to kind of take in yeah. um, and process. Um, it took a while to kind of, you know, get back in the swing of things, I would say. And it was hard because already the, the pandemic disrupted everything. Right. So it's not like you could come back okay. to your, regular routine i came back to lockdown basically so it's now spending a lot of time by myself and trying to figure stuff out so it was very very interesting time wow thanks for sharing that omar so you you talked about all this amazing travel that you were able to do how did you go from that in your early career to what you're doing now well i mean i think the thing that was uh the thin red line connecting everything that i've done Mm -hmm. is is my passion for for leadership and so, you know, when I was, before I ever, you know, became a people, a people manager, I wanted to be the best people manager possible. So I was studying for the role. I was, all, you know, basically reading every book I could absorb about, about the principles of leadership and how to be a, a modern leader and a good leader. And then when I came a leader uh, in 2006 of a team of my own, my own organization for the first time, you know, I began, you know, practicing these principles and kind of like putting them into action and then, you know, in a customizing them to my style, right? And identifying my own style. And then, you know, you get bigger and bigger organizations and you start to try to apply things at scale, right? You start scaling up, you know, from maybe 40 people to now 900 people with the same principles and trying to make a bigger impact. So for me, it's always been about making a bigger and bigger impact mm-hmm. with the things that I really believe in from a leadership standpoint, uh, which are, you know, really uh, seeing the person, not the role. So embracing uniqueness and the talent of every person, regardless of their background, where they come from, what they look like, you know, doesn't matter. I think when I look at people, I see, I see limitless potential. And so my job is to extract, extract that potential and create the conditions for success for everyone that I I worked with. So then, you know, naturally my goal is to influence on a broader scale. So leaving pharma, now the goal is to take everything that I've learned and kind of package it out and try to, you know, do it on a global scale now. That is amazing. And I love that you said that you have a passion for leadership. Mm-hmm. Omar, talk to us about some tips that we as leaders in general can take away with us from this conversation about being a better leader. Well, I think that what I always say is, you know, you have to begin to question your reasons for wanting to be a leader in the first place, right? So you have to, you know, a lot of times we don't ever ask ourselves a question. We we want the position, yeah. you know, we, we want to move up in an organization, but we don't necessarily want the responsibility. So a lot of times people move up for self-interest, for ego interest, like basically it's more, it's all about me. But the moment you become a sort of like, imagine if you if you became a parent and you became more selfish, the more kids you had. Doesn't make any mm. sense, right? Nice. It's the same thing with leadership. The more responsibility you have over people, the the less selfish you should ultimately become. Mm. And that's the idea. You know, the principal idea is that it's not about you. It's only about you when you're an individual contributor. After that, in your career, it's about everybody else. And that's the thing that most people don't understand about leadership. Mm-hmm. It's about the other. It's not about the self. That's such good advice. And, you know, you talked about the responsibility of it. And very often what happens is people think of the responsibility to the task, but the responsibility to the people is what makes you a good leader. Well, we're not, I mean, we don't live in a robotic society yet, Uh, (laughs) Jackie. So so who's going to do the task? It's going to be a person. 
at the end of the day, it's That's people. Right. It's all people. So so the more people oriented you can become, the the better off you can become. And I understand that, you know, like the thing that you have to deal with the higher up you matriculate in an organization is you are going to be responsible at some point or you're going to be asked to terminate people in mass. It's going to happen to you if you matriculate through any organization. And so I think that people develop a callousness towards it. They say, listen, okay, well, I'm going to make it about myself so that I don't have to think about the lives of others whenever I get whenever it gets to this point of yeah. me having to make the termination decision or whatever it is. And so they, mm-hmm. they try to distance themselves from the act, but you can't mm-hmm. distance yourself from the act. You are you are fundamentally making decisions or taking actions that are impacting others' lives, and you need to own it. You need to own all of it. You need to own the good, the bad, and the ugly of being a leader. Yeah. You can't just take the parts you like. You have to take you know, the That's whole right. thing. Absolutely. So, Omar, we talked about your having the opportunity to work all over the world. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about those places and how diversity and inclusion differs on a global scale from what we experience here in the U.S. Well, I think everything in America, we look at things through a black and white or male and female or, you know, now with now gender gender lens. Right. So we're very kind of binary in terms of how we look at everything in America, where it's, it's a lot more fluid in other places. And also there's a, a lot more history in other places and history is different and the context matters. Right. So in America, we have our history. We have a story of European settlers coming here and then you know, ultimately the slave trade and then ultimately the industrial revolution and ultimately everything else, right? So we have, we have, we have this linear history we can trace back 400, 500 years. In other countries, it's not, it's much more messy. Like Turkey is a country that's been around for thousands of years. They've seen and forgotten more than America's ever learned. So their, their, their frame of reference is very different. So Turkey, as an example, had a leader called Ataturk um, in the early twenties and thirties. And he actually liberated women far earlier than most other countries in the world. And so women in Turkey are far more independent, liberated, and sophisticated than women in, in a lot of other nations because Ataturk had daughters and he wanted to build a world where his daughters uh, had the same freedoms as men. And so you see uh, the role of, of females in Turkey is much more prevalent in that society. It's not, it's not necessarily such a paternalistic society or male-dominated. And, yeah. and you see the progress that women have made because the government uh, early on bet on women, made sure they got educated, made sure they had equal rights, mm-hmm. made sure they were taken care of. And so so from a diversity standpoint, you see a lot more, for example, in the Turkish organization of the company that I worked for, you saw a lot of female representation. It was almost 50-50, right? Senior mm-hmm. leaders, you saw you saw mixed, you know, a lot more mixing, even probably better than the US uh, from that perspective. But mm-hmm. there are marginalized identities in every society. So in a country like Turkey, the issue is how do you help more poor individuals move mm-hmm. up the, the economic ladder, right? Yeah. So there's a there's a status thing in Turkey. The the glass ceiling is status, not gender or ethnicity necessarily. Got it. If that makes sense. Okay. And Brazil is a very mixed up country. So you have a country that was founded by the Portuguese, and the Portugal is a country this t- small, and Brazil is a country this big. And you're asking yourself, how does a country this small conquer a country this big? Well, what they did was by by design, they mixed with the natives. So basically, there they they discovered natives there. They mixed with them, and that was the strategy of the Portuguese to maintain control over Brazil. But societally, they were basically their whole mission was to take 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 away from Brazil and give riches to the Portuguese government. And so you have a 
you have a country built on exploitation, basically, the foundation of exploitation. And that plays out in modern society today, where you basically poor people in Brazil, resources in Brazil are still being exploited for this very, very rich 1% uh, in that country. And so the income gap, the poverty you see in Brazil is unlike anything you'll see in other nations. So it's complex. For example, because of all the racial mixing, on a checkbox, it's not like Black, African American, African, you know, mm-hmm. Caucasian. There's like twelve of those things. Oh wow! Oh, wow. So identity is very segmented in Brazil, and so it's much harder to kind of say we need to we need to get more of this group because yeah. it's so it's so segmented, right? Um, mm-hmm. even in their politics, they don't have one two political parties. They have like thirty political parties. It's a very unique kind of uh, country yeah. from that from that perspective, and so. But the one thing we can, we do know is that women uh, are underrepresented in leadership positions in Brazil and in Latin America in general. And then Afro-Brazilians are definitely marginalized in that population. So there's a lot of work to be done so that Afro-Brazilians have a better shot at wealth. Like when I was the general manager for a large pharma company in Brazil, I was only the second president of a company that was of African origin in the entire business world in Brazil. Wow. So, you know, me as me and one other guy and I wasn't Brazilian. So there's only one Brazilian of African descent who leads a conglomerate of corporations in that country. So they're farther behind than or further behind than even the U.S. is on a lot of their diversity and inclusion initiatives. Mm -hmm. And so that's an issue that Brazil is going to have to reconcile as they move forward, even though they had a female president before the U.S. a few Mm -hmm. years ago. It doesn't mean they're more progressive than we are in terms of diversity and inclusion. Got it. And then you go to Indonesia, which is a really interesting mm-hmm. nation because Indonesia is not one country. Like I say, Indonesia has 718 different tribes and 319 different dialects. It's 18,000 different islands. And the country's only been around since 1946. Mm-hmm. So it's a very young nation. It's a group of people who came together. They actually had to create a language for each other so they could speak with each other. And you have a lot and you have a lot of tribalism in Indonesia. What I experienced was you have religious uh, diversity issues. So you have mm-hmm. basically a large Muslim population and you have Christians being more prosperous and privileged in the, in the society because most of them come from a Chinese background. So you okay. have this colorism thing. Basically, mm-hmm. when you look at the top of companies in Indonesia, it's mostly light skinned Indonesians or Chinese descendant Indonesians who lead those companies. So there's this whole just like India and a lot of brown-led nations where you have the, the fairer your skin, the more privileged you are in society. Mm-hmm. That that exists in Indonesia very prevalently because of their colonial background being colonized by the mm-hmm. Dutch for many years. And so you have you have that issue as well. In, in Indonesian society, also it's very hierarchical. So basically with age, you receive accolades. So basically, you, if you're a young person, you can't speak up against someone who's older than you. And so, you know, mm-hmm. you have this kind of oppression of of ageism on people where they basically just are just sitting around playing the game, waiting to get old enough so that they can kind of live their lives. Mm. And so it's an interesting dynamic from, from an inclusion standpoint, because younger people don't feel they, they can speak up and have a voice in society. So it's, it's very, you know, you know, I could go on for, for days about this, but it's very interesting, you know, and you have to understand what I'm trying to convey is that you have to understand the history to understand the present of, What's driving diversity and inclusion in these markets today? That's exactly right. You know, and Omar, I, I totally agree. Even here in the U.S., you have to understand the history to understand, yes. you know, what's yes. happening. But 
it's really interesting because, you know, here in the U.S., we think about diversity and inclusion from our own lens, right? But, you know, we're recording this in Global Diversity Month, so I wanted to definitely have this conversation, too, because there's just so many dynamics that are occurring all around the world, right? And when we think of DEI, it's not just U.S.-based, right? It's it's a global issue and something that we need to be addressing one step at a time. It's not a monolith. It's not a monolith. I mean, it's different in every single market and you have to dig in to understand and that, and also understand the the privileges in the society, the injustices in the society, what diversity means in that society and what inclusion means in that society. Um, Some things are universal, but Mm -hmm. a lot, a lot isn't. Absolutely. And Omar, on a more personal note, let's talk about some of the differences in how you were treated, right? Here in the U.S. versus some of the other countries that you lived in, what was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, I had a few, you know, kind of uh, foundational racist things happen to me in the U.S., but not a, not as many as as other people. I, I consider consider myself privileged in that sense that I didn't really go through a lot of racial uh, hatred or anything like that um, yeah. coming up in my youth. If I come across as more optimistic than other people, maybe it's because of that. Yeah, but. In other nations, the one thing you realize as a as an African American person, as a black person, is that you know I was American before I was black, for the first time in my life, when I lived overseas. When I was in Brazil, no one no one treated me like a black person. They treated me like I was an American first, mm-hmm. and who happened to be black. Mm-hmm. And so I received privileges that if you if that people who looked just like me in Brazil couldn't get because I, I could say I was American. I spoke English and that was my calling card in that society. I can remember being 23 years old and walking to the front of clubs and speaking English and being let in in front of thousands of people because I spoke English. That was my, that was it. I'm an American. Therefore I must be important. And therefore they're letting me in the club. Can you imagine? Wow. <laughs> Something like that. It's crazy. But Turkey was very different. Turkey I felt like an alien. I would take the, I guess they're they not used to seeing professional, like suited and booted, you know, black people. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a lot of Africans and yeah. in, in Turkey, like Nigerians, but they're like panhandling and doing the hustling on the, on the street corner. You don't see a lot of people wearing suits and ties and going to work. So whenever mm-hmm. I would take the subway to, to work, people would just stare at me. Mm-hmm. And it was really uncomfortable. Like I didn't mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't like being the center of attention and I don't like being just stared at like, right. Oh, open mouth people looking at you like oh my goodness. like are you an alien so I, I really you know kind of felt my otherness in turkey i really mm-hmm. felt like a like a exotic animal of some sort mm-hmm. in in society not at work at work everything was cool mm-hmm. but but outside of work i really felt quite uh judged by identity mm-hmm. uh, so i didn't enjoy that so much and then in indonesia you get treated in accordance with your station right so because i was a general manager mm-hmm. I get treated like the 1%. So I don't have any issues. Like, I mean, everything is beautiful and grand. And, you know, yeah. I had my own elevator access. I had, you know, a bathroom in my office. I had, right. you know, like mm-hmm. I had, I had all, I had a driver for the first time in my life. I had, yeah. you know, I lived in a gated compound that was super, super secure. So I had all the, I experienced all the privilege that the top of society can experience. And so I also lived that identity, which was interesting to just be, purely privileged based on position and economic factors that have nothing to do with what you look like. So in that society, 
money talks, everything else walks. And so that was really what I experienced. And I never, you know, that was, that was kind of like my, my experience. Although I had some funny experiences in Indonesia. I went to, um, to Bali and I went to a, uh, I went to a temple to visit one of those famous temples on, on a uh, kind of a reef or coastline. Yeah. Wow. And there was, was like this old 75 year old man sitting there uh, when we pulled up and he mm-hmm. was, I got in the car and he was like, what's up, my brother? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was the funniest thing that had ever happened to me oh in my, my entire life. Two things. That, one thing that happened to me. And then I went to a coffee shop uh-huh. in, in Indonesia once in Jakarta and I gave him my name. When I got the cut back, it said Obama on it. And I thought that was hilarious. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so so I don't know if that's racist or not. I don't know, I don't know what, how you want to determine that. I thought it was funny, but that's just me. Oh, my God. Wow. That is so interesting. Omar, thanks for sharing that. You know, it's, of course, of course. it's interesting, right, how you didn't change, right? You are still the same person. But right. depending on the environment how other people changed and how they approached you or how they viewed you. And, you know, that certainly plays into thinking about the way that we think about people, Mm -hmm. right. The bias that we have or the judgments that we make about who people are. Right. And it's really interesting to see how that differs based on your environment, even though you are one person. Right. Yeah. yeah, But I I definitely did change. I mean, you have to change. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that, especially when you live overseas, if you come in saying, I'm not going to change, then you're not Mm going to be able to participate in the society, which is why I understand inclusion in a different way than maybe other DEI practitioners understand inclusion. Yeah. Because, you know, in society, you're forced to kind of conform to the norms of, Mm -hmm. of these countries in order to get around. And it's the same thing we do to people in companies. We don't embrace okay. their otherness. We force you to conform to be one of us, right? That's to get true. along, you have to be one of us. And that's, I know what it feels like to mm-hmm. have parts of yourself that you just can't show anymore in order for you to s- survive in this society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I know what it, I know what that feels like. And so that's the lens I treat inclusion with when I talk to talk to leaders about it and, and try to do the work in the inclusion space specifically yeah. is that, we have a bad habit of making people conform and, and that, and the fact mm-hmm. of conforming squeezes the uniqueness out of individuals. Mm-hmm. That is so true. Well, Omar, let's talk about Jedi leadership. Yes. let's. What is Jedi leadership? Let's start there. So let's start with Jedi, right? So Jedi is an acronym for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. It's not my acronym. I, as far as I've, I've been able to divide, it was, uh, created by a gentleman named Marcelo Bonta, who works in the environmental uh, advocacy space. But, you know, really what it means is a different way to lead. So if we lived in a world where shareholder, basically profits for shareholders was going to be our ultimate objective, and we lived in that world for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's no need for, for anyone to change at the top of the house because basically, you know, we're going to, what, what we achieve matters more than how we achieve it. Mm-hmm. But what's happened over the last 20 years is that underneath the top of the house, the demographics have dramatically shifted, right? So you have, mm-hmm. you know, the most diverse workforce in history working for the least diverse leadership yeah. people in history. <laughs> and so this, yeah. this conflict is leading to us to needing a new style of leadership. These, 
non-diverse leaders have to start leading in the principles and uncomfortable spaces that they never had to deal with before. And those uncomfortable spaces are trying to understand and eradicate injustices, eliminate inequities, expand mm-hmm. diversity and enhance inclusion. And so they get data that says, oh, okay, so I've got to get rid of these things in my system and I've got to try to work these things out. I've got to kind mm-hmm. of embrace people's diversity and I have to make them feel belonging. We never cared about that stuff 30 years ago, but now we have to care about it today. So if we care about it today, then we need to embrace a new form of leadership. Yeah. Which means basically, and at every level of a corporation, if you're if you're responsible for people, your new job, the new rules of leadership are to basically lean into and understand the identities of everybody who works for you and try to see your corporate world through their eyes and understand what are things they might perceive as injustices, what are things that are definitely inequities that they're experiencing, how is their diversity being valued or not, and how safe and secure and included do they feel in the overall goings-on of the organization. And so... By leaning into those spaces as a manager and as a senior leader, you begin to create a process and a cycle where you can get rid of the negative things, do more of the positive things, and also achieve more things for more stakeholders. That sounds incredible. And Omar, I know that you also wrote a book. You've actually got a few books out. I think you've got three leadership books. Yes, yes, correct. So let's talk about the first two, but I want to really lean into your new book. Mm-hmm. Be a Jedi leader, not a boss. Yes, and I yes, love yes. that. Yes. Well, so I, I, let's I can, talk yeah. just for a minute about the first two books, and then we'll get into this one. Okay. Well, I mean, the, the first book I wrote kind of out of uh, necessity because I was trying to kind of crystallize for myself all the things that I had learned in my career about leadership, about team leadership, and apply them to an organization at scale. So I was leading... Uh, uh, an Indonesian organization of 900 people. And I really had to kind of enhance my acumen. And so what I began doing was identifying several principles that I could utilize as a leader to move my team through the stages of forming, storming, norming, and performing. And as I did this, I began to, to identify tools that I could utilize to speed myself through these stages. And I realized that every team leader is going to have to go through this. So I might as well document it and a book, which I call Leaderboard, the DNA of High Performance Team. So if you read that book, what you'll get is the most up-to-the-minute modern toolkit for helping you get, take a team from formation to high performance and keep them there. The first half of the book is a fictional narrative about a, a, a leader trying to do this with a team he's got. And then yeah. the, the second half of the book is the discussion section where I, we talk about the learnings from the first half of the book. So it's a very entertaining uh, leadership book. It's easy to read, easy to digest, um, and jam-packed full of tools and information. That's awesome. The second book I published in 2020 was called The Servant Leader's Manifesto. And this is really kind of my, you know, my line in the sand saying, this is what I stand for as a leader. So if you want to know what I'm all about and what I think leadership ultimately should be about to the end of today's day and age, the Servant Leader's Manifesto is a documentation of those principles. And so there's seven, you know, key principles in the Servant Leaders Manifesto that I take you through to go from where you where you are today to becoming a servant leader by the end of the book. And um, I also have a, a an on-demand training course linked to the book that you can also kind of get more detail and take further steps to to really modernize your leadership approach. That's awesome, and- Omar. Before we jump into Jedi, 
I want to talk about servant leader, right? Yes, what does yes. that mean? So leadership today is hierarchical, power-based leadership. What it means is that the higher up you go through an organization, the more people are working for you, right? So you have control and power over other people. The higher up you move up the pyramid in an organization. And so ultimately what matters to people are what you care about, what you want to get done, what your strategies are, what your, you know, basically it's the classic Steve Jobs, Apple model, basically, mm-hmm. you know, everything in this company is colored by my personality. Right. That's, that's standard, you know, I would say ego driven leadership, right? Mm-hmm. Servant leadership is when you take this hierarchy and you flip it on its head and you point it not at the senior leader, but you point it at the stakeholders, you point it at the customer, you point it at the community, point it at uh, employees, you point it at the environment. And so you, the senior leaders are at the bottom of the pyramid serving the organization. Yeah. They're like Atlas holding up the world. So your job mm-hmm. is very different when you orient yourself towards serving, serving and supporting. It reorients the entire way of the company and the way you as an individual lead through your organization because your role becomes not to command and dictate, your role becomes to serve and support. Mm-hmm. And serving and supporting gets just as much done as commanding and dictating. Maybe not as fast, mm-hmm. but the feeling of it is far better. And it, it will allow you to connect with the new generations of employees coming in today who are not going to tolerate command and control because that's not the way they were raised and that's not the way they were educated. And so you have mm-hmm. to modernize or else these young people are not going to stand for it. And what we're seeing now in 2021 mm-hmm. is this great resignation trend where currently around 20 million people have resigned as of August from the mm-hmm. workforce. Yeah. And it's mostly, it's a lot of young people because of these issues that I've been highlighting for years. Yeah. You know, it's, we've got to really understand the way the world is shifting. Right. Yes, and, yes. and that's part of, being a good leader because the way you lead in one decade is going to be very different from the way you have to lead in another decade. And you're right with this great resignation, we have to really evaluate how we're leading because the reason that people are leaving their positions is not necessarily for more money or for a bigger job title. It's they want to make sure that they feel valued and respected and supported and understand their career path, right? And that has to do more with leadership than it does anything else. Well, there's data from the Predictive Index who did a study of of this great resignation that came out like last month. And they found out that 64% of people who are considering leaving their employer in the next 12 months are doing so because of a bad manager. And and only 26% of people with a good manager are thinking about leaving their employer. So the manager really matters and how we lead really matters. And the more you make it about yourself, the less you're going to be able to lead others. That's such good advice. All right. Let's talk about be a Jedi leader, not a boss. Tell me about that book. Make it full circle. I come back to the U.S. 2020. I'm let's smack dab in a pandemic and, and social justice protests. And I'm seeing corporations stand up in a way I've never seen before in my entire life. And I'm very inspired by these statements of, you know, Nike and you know, Apple and everybody making these huge, you know, monetary commitments to the cause. And I'm like, wow, we're living in a really cool moment. But then I sit back and I'm like, but who's holding them accountable? Like, it's really easy to make a statement, but it's a lot harder to do the work. And I'm also like, well, once again, it's very easy to write a check. It's a lot harder to do the internal work 
to yes. eradicate injustices, eliminate inequities, expand diversity and enhance inclusion. So I was like, these leaders need a blueprint for how to go from, to, to really hold themselves accountable to the standards that they're mm -hmm. stating in these public statements. And I didn't see anything out there for corporate leaders that fit that niche. You know, I, we had books on anti-racism and books on how to talk about white fragility and books about, but nothing about leadership in the era of social justice uh, and equity, diversity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And so I felt that I had a unique niche because I'm I'm a leader of a diverse background of a marginalized mm -hmm. identity who's led, you know, people who didn't look like me all over the world. Yes. And been able to do so without, you know, doing anything toxic to anybody. And so I wanted to kind of document this, this blueprint for organizations and for leaders and kind of write down kind of my approach for how I would tackle these problems if I were working with yeah. you inside of your company. Well, what would I do and what, what, what is the best thinking of the moment on this issue? Because my book happens to be the most well-researched book on this topic that's out right now. Over 270 references in my book. And so it's up to the moment, very current, very well-researched, and also very broad in scope in terms of the impact that a Jedi leader can have. Because Jedi leaders don't just have positive impact on employees. Mm -hmm. Jedi leaders have the ability to improve conditions for the community, for customers, and the environment. Yes. And so the point is, we, we, we need to do the internal work so we can then externalize outputs to these very important stakeholders. We can't, we can't keep you know, uh, leaving communities in the dust. We can't keep denigrating the environment. We can't keep, you know, treating the customer as, you know, an afterthought. And, and so we have to do better. And in order for us to do better for these stakeholders, we have to first do better by our employees. That's kind of the, the statement of, grand statement of purpose of, of mm -hmm. the book. So many of us want to do the right thing, right? But we yeah. don't have that blueprint. We don't know where to start. We don't know what the steps are. Mm -hmm. So having a guide, right, is so helpful to yeah. us being able to match as leaders our intent with our actions. So that's awesome. And then yeah. where, Omar, can people find your books? Well, if you go to Amazon.com, Omar L. Harris, you'll find it. If you Google me, Omar L. Harris, you'll find all of my stuff. My website is, if you want to autograph copies, personally autographed by me, uh, you get it from my website, www.omarlharris.com. And I love to connect with everybody on LinkedIn and Twitter. So if you want to have a conversation, let's link me on Twitter at Strengths Leader or on LinkedIn, Omar L. Harris, um, because, you know, once again, I exist to serve and support your journey as a leader and manager. And so that's my 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 internal statement of a purpose. And I'm happy to inspire and motivate you through a podcast, but there's a lot more we can do together. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Omar. Let's talk a little about Intent Consulting. Tell us mm -hmm. about that organization. And then I want to get into your new inclusion app. Yes. So so I had the idea for Intent Consulting like back in 2000 and I think 18. This word, like I was like, if I was, you know, I was already preparing myself to kind of be out of the corporate realm at some point. I didn't know when I was going to be, but I knew it was going to be some point. And Really, I was like, what would I call such an entity? And for me, this word intent kept coming up, intent, mm -hmm. intent, you know, because what you intend is really important that the, the, what you ultimately were trying to accomplish is so important. And how do you align your intentions with your actions to achieve your, your goals and your purpose? That's like, that's what I stand for. That's what I'm all about. I want to mm -hmm. help align 
intentions. Because I think a lot of people, like you said, every uh, most people have positive intentions, right? Right. They just okay. don't. They just don't know how to do what they're trying to do, right? Mm-hmm. And so if I was going to have a consulting organization, it was going to be about helping people connect the dots between their intention, their positive intent, and the action they need to take to, to make that, that attention live in the world. And that's why I came up with the company. And basically, Intake Consulting is an umbrella for everything that, that I, I'm passionate about and I want to do. So publishing, yeah. uh, consulting, team and executive coaching, mm-hmm. training and facilitation, and ultimately productions of so television and movie productions and finally technology. Yeah. So everything that, you know, it's, it's a way to max out my capacity and my capabilities in an organizational design. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's been very fun over the last year and a half kind of building out each of these verticals and uh, seeing the reaction from, from the public about these verticals and, and the excitement about what we're doing. I love that. And, you know, when I think about the word intent, one of the words that I use almost daily is intentional. Yes. Because yes. when you're doing this work in diversity, equity, and inclusion, when you're trying to create the culture that you want, mm. when you're trying to make sure that you're respecting someone that you're interacting with, you mm. need to be intentional. Right. And so that word is so important. So I love the name of your organization because thank you. You know, in order to do things well, in order to do things right, you have to have the right intent and you have to be intentional about right. being mindful about it as well. Good re- a good recent example of that, Jackie, is this all the hubbub about Dave Chappelle's last comedy special, The Closer, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, my whole problem with with this special and a lot of his recent specials has been what is his ultimate intent? Mm. So I think that, you know, what, you can agree or disagree with whatever the comedy, da, da, da. I think his intention was off. He's pitting marginalized identities against each other. And we need to be, yeah. we need to be working together, not battling each other. And Agreed. I think, I think he needs to take a look at his intent. He's mm. a very brilliant person. He's one of the most educated, well-educated people in the world. He yeah. knows his history, but he needs to check his intent for speaking. Mm. If he does that, then I think that we would see better, better results. And I hope he does. I, hope he, I love that, Chappelle. I, I totally agree with that, Omar. And, and I love how you phrase that, actually, because I've been trying to figure out, like, what's been missing for me, right? Because right. back in the day, like, I was the biggest Dave Chappelle fan. <laughs> and these last few specials have just missed the mark for me. And I'm like, what is this about, right? And right, right. not loving all of the, you know, pitting the marginalized identities against each other. And I'm like, what is he trying to accomplish? But I couldn't put my finger on it until you just said that. And I've been having this conversation and not being able to get there. So thank you for that. (laughs) No problem. Like what is his intent? And that's, that's exactly right. So thanks for that. You've helped me through <laughs> the next set of conversations. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 important. it's an important conversation to have. I think yeah. it's, uh, but I think at the end of the day, I kind of go back to Stephen Covey's principles, begin with the end in mind. What are you trying to achieve? Yeah. And why are you trying to achieve this? First of all, why? Mm-hmm. Why? You know, and if it's, if it's more for your own self-edification or to protect yourself or to defend your ego, it's always going to come out wrong. And that's, you know, what I've perceived is people getting lost in the ego and that taints their intent and therefore corrupts the message. Wow. That's really good advice. You know, and as leaders, we we all have those moments where we have to make a decision. Like, are you 
thinking about people is your ego involved right. in how you're reacting. So that's, right. that's such good advice. Yeah. So Omar, let's talk about your new inclusion app. Tell us yes. all about it. Yes. Yeah, so one of the things is, is as I'm writing, you know, be a Jedi leader, not a boss, I'm thinking about different solutions for different issues in the justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion space. And so yeah. for me, when you think about eradicating injustices, I have a system and tools for that, which is basically more about how I consult. And I use my consulting is designed to really eradicate injustices and eliminate inequities. But on an equity scale, I wanted to create a tool, which I, which I just launched as well, called Equity Pulse. Io and Equity Pulse is really an accountability tracker for co- people who work for Fortune 500 companies and want to anonymously be able to comment on their company's progress against diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. So if you go to EquityPulse.io/survey, you can take this survey and anonymously let us know how your company is doing against these initiatives. And we're going to create profiles of companies like Glassdoor and basically publicly begin showing company progress against these initiatives. On diversity, I'm a guy of certified strengths coach. And so I believe that one of the best ways of embracing diversity is to embrace uh, the positive psychology and uh, uh, strengths movement, basically mm-hmm. seeing what's right with people, not what's wrong with people. So that's a tool that I advocate in the diversity space. But inclusion, I was like, what do we have for inclusion? Mm, yeah. <laughs> like, like to quantify, like, you know, so how do you quantify belonging? How do you quantify psychological safety, right? Other than surveying people to death, like how do you actually do it? So I began thinking about my own experience and there's a moment in large companies where inclusion should happen, but doesn't happen. And that moment is the all hands meeting or the town hall meeting or the whatever you call it, the you know, ask me anything meeting where this where senior management comes and stands before the corporation and talks about progress against initiatives, financial performance, strategies, expectations for that quarter moving forward. That that happens in almost every Fortune 500 company in the world, right? On a regular Mm -hmm. basis. But these moments tend to end up being about what the leader wants to say versus what the employees want to to hear, right? And what Mm -hmm. the employees need to feel more included. So I was like, what if I could design a technology solution that would bridge the gap between what the leader wants to say mm-hmm. and what the employee understands, agrees with, and is aligned with. Yeah. And just by asking these questions for the first time, it will transform the dynamic between senior management and their employees and hopefully bring trust together because we're going to identify a whole bunch of issues and concerns that have to be worked out. Mm-hmm. And you, you put the leadership team in service of their employees when you do this. So yeah. The technology tempo.io is a technology designed to facilitate this kind of inclusive interaction during these town hall meetings. Uh, I finished the minimum viable product for the tool. The MVP is ready. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening to this podcast and you want to talk to me about beta testing the app, please you know contact me um, yeah. offline. But this is really about creating a, more than a two-way exchange and creating more than just engagement, but creating inclusion because mm-hmm. you're forcing senior leaders to listen to different identities in the organization, lean into, hear them, and then act. Because one of the cool things about the application is after the town hall, there's an issue management matrix. So employees can go back to the app and see the leadership team work through the issues and concerns that were raised during the meeting. 
And so in a very simple traffic, traffic light system, red means we haven't taken action yet. Amber means we're working on it. Green means we've done it. And so now it's like an accountability for the internal leadership towards the employees. And there's a Jedi idea box that's always on. So basically employees at any moment, when they get an idea around how to improve the company's efforts on justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, mm -hmm. it crowdsources those ideas from your employees. So I happen to think it's a very valuable product awesome. uh, yeah. and we're, we're trying to get it out, get investment behind it and, and get it out to the world next year. Love it. I can't wait to try it. That sounds <laughs> amazing. You know, it's when we think about some of these concepts, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Measurement is so important. It is. But it a is. lot of times we don't know how to measure and we're a little afraid to measure, right? There's that. Yeah. But it's so important to understand where you really are, honestly. Yes. And then what kind of progress you're making. And then where are the gaps? Like what's still not right? And you need right. the measurement to be able to see that. So I, I think that's yeah. great. I think we're over-engineering DEI work. I think it's being over-engineered. I think it's being over-complicated. Okay. Uh, How so? We started off kind of in the kumbaya space, which was, let's get everybody together and let's just talk. This is not something that people want to talk about, right? In corporations, they want to do their job. They want to get things done. They want to go home to their, to their wives and their kids and their, and their spouses and, mm -hmm. and live their lives. They don't want to, nobody wants to feel like they're being, a, a spotless being pointed at them, like you're the bad guy. You're the bad actor in this system. I try to think about like what, you know, straight white men feel about this moment. And they, they, it's very, it's massively uncomfortable, which is why you see, such a revolt from the other side in terms of, you know, anti-woke culture and anti-wokeism and all this, you know, Fox mm -hmm. News type stuff from because they need a, a safe place to go. And so we're actually pushing potentially good people into a negative space because of how we're attacking the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. for, for me, to simplify this whole thing, that I issues are business risks, just yes. like fraud and compliance and ethics and values are. Right. It's no different and it have to be treated the same way. Mm -hmm. And companies are very good at managing business risk. So they should be very good at managing DEI risk because it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not different. And, and so I think we're over-engineering it to a certain extent. We're not taking baby steps. We want, we want people to have these aha epiphany moments in these roundtable discussions. And very few times that's going to actually happen. Mm -hmm. But we've changed the incentives. We've changed the structures. We've changed the processes. We change the priorities. Mm -hmm. The people will adapt. That's exactly right. And and I think you're right about how we're talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. And and mm -hmm. because very often practitioners will talk about it in a you need to include us, but you're not in that group kind of conversation. Right. Right. And really right. these are just business imperatives. Right, right. right. It goes back to the golden rule. Treat others how you want to be treated. So like how would you react to a microaggression? Mm -hmm. You know, but there's all this new terminology, right? Like microaggressions. And people are just like, what, what is all this stuff? I'm trying to wrap my head around it and yeah. do my job. And they don't understand that doing your, this is your job. It's not, yeah. dif it's not different than your job because your job is people. That's right. So embracing people is all you have to do. Embrace people, love people for their difference. Try to help them mm -hmm. out. And you are a Jedi leader. That's it. And, and, you, and you're going to make a big difference. Like, don't, yeah. that, that, it's not more complicated than that, in my opinion. Yeah. Now, Omar, one thing that is a question that, that I have regarding that is that 
a lot, you know, you certainly have experience in moving through different cultures and mm-hmm. being comfortable finding the ways to, to acclimate and to also, you know, be yourself. Right. 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 But some people and a lot of people, especially in the U.S., have surrounded themselves with same and light mm-hmm. and moving mm-hmm. out of that circle now in the workplace. Right. Is is complicated for them and a little bit scary. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What are some of the ways that that they can feel that sense of, you know, let's jump in and and try something new and and how right. do people let, that that feel that apprehension, you know, embrace people and and treat right. others the way that they should. I think we're trying we're just trying to get people to admit that they don't know and that makes them uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's as simple as that is to say listen, mm-hmm. I don't know how to deal with all this difference, you know? Yeah. It makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to double down on what got me here. Mm-hmm. Even, if, even if that is is going to basically be toxic to the new people that I'm working with. Yeah. And that's really what we're trying to get leaders to do is basically say, listen, just get to a place of vulnerability where you're willing to say, I don't know. I think if you say, I don't know, then you're open to, okay, we're well, learning something new. And that's all right. we're trying to do is basically, and the great thing about this is, you have the, a great resource of information, which is the people you do who are working for you. Mm-hmm. They have the keys to the kingdom. They'll tell you if you start leaning in and asking them questions, they'll start telling you things. You'll be like, "Oh, mm-hmm. I wasn't aware that you perceived this situation that way." Wow. Yeah. I need to, you know, take that on board and think differently about how I behave in certain situations, mm-hmm. so that I don't. Because that's not the environment, or that's not my intention. I was not trying to do that. Right. So the more, once again, we go back to intentions. I think that once again, these leaders, their intention is positive, but they have no idea how it's landing on others, which is why with Tempo, we will begin to see and understand how what leaders are saying and how they're showing up lands on their people yeah, and, quanti- and quantify it for the first time. And I think absolutely. that's the power of that. And so I think it's really beginning to just be comfortable asking the questions and waiting into spaces that you're uncomfortable and not having the, the racism conversation or the anti-racism conversation necessarily, but having a conversation about what are some injustices you've experienced with your identity throughout your career? And do you experiencing, are yeah. you experiencing those kind of things here in our company? And what do you think we can mm-hmm. do about it? That's it. That's all you yeah. have to do. Ask those questions and commit to action. Yeah. So whatever you hear, commit to act on to the best of your ability. That's all, that's all anybody can ask of you as a leader. That's great advice. Great advice. Well, Omar, as we begin to wrap up, I just want to say I've learned so much. I appreciate the conversation. It's been so great. I always like to end with asking a question about you personally, right? So Omar, tell us something about you that not a lot of people know. So because I did this on purpose, um, Mm -hmm. I, I wrote my first book, a novel under a pseudonym, Quantu Amaru. So not a lot of people know that I have a novel out and that it's a best-selling award-winning novel, actually, uh, called One Blood. And even less people know that it's being developed into a TV show. My sister and I uh, wrote the pilot and we're working on the series together and we have uh, representation in Hollywood and we're actively uh, shopping it to different studios at the moment. So wish us luck. Hopefully we'll see that thing come through. And, And One Blood is kind of the great American novel. And it does deal with all these topics of racism and yeah. identity and, you know, but it also has 
a whore, Ted, hoodoo, voodoo, all this mm-hmm. exciting, compelling stuff. Because I, I grew up in Louisiana, so you get all yeah. that. You get all that in the book. So, wow. um, yeah, something people don't really know know about me. Uh, that because, is so cool. Because, because I've separated the identities a bit. Yeah, yeah, that is awesome. Well, good luck with that. Keep us posted. I will, Jackie. I will. And then, Omar, just finally, what's the message that you'd like to leave our listeners with today? So I think the message primarily is diversity, equity, and inclusion starts with each of us. So rather than looking outside of ourselves and see that person is not, you know, let's check in with our own, I call the three Bs, beliefs, biases, and behaviors. Mm-hmm. So we need to start inspecting our own beliefs that create biases that lead to how we act in the world. And I think if everybody can just start with themselves and do the three Bs exercises and do the three Bs work, then uh, we will begin to manifest the kind of outcomes we want to see uh, in others by starting with ourselves first. That's awesome. Thank you, Omar, so much Thank for you. Thank you, Jackie. spending some time with us today. I, I've Again, I've just learned so much and I really enjoyed talking to you. So Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Omar. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like this show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you really like it, leave us a rating and review as well. To keep up with our seasons and our guests, follow this podcast on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Jackie Ferguson. Join us for our next episode of Diversity Beyond the Checkbox. Take care of yourself and each other.